God, we want to glorify you through this mode of worship, through this act. Uh, and Lord, help everyone have ears to hear. and uh, help, Especially me, God, help me to be faithful with the scriptures this morning. Holy Spirit, guide my mind and my words. And just uh, as I always pray, that you, the dumb things that I say would uh, fall to the wayside and that the important things would rise to the top and help us to... Uh, get a clear picture of your revealed word through, through uh, the scriptures that, um, that we have. God, I pray for, for each of us as we might be going through things and as uh, sometimes coming to a, a sermon or a, a Bible text is, a, is the farthest thing from our minds. It's, the, it's not where we have been living, but surprises God with uh, the uh, relatability, uh, that the relevance of it. Um, to, to actually open our eyes to see that this is more relevant than a lot of things that we've uh, put as the uh, major things in our lives. God, help us to, to make you more of you, God. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Yes, yes. Amen. Um, so, Jerry, if you have the text, uh, we're going to go ahead and read this. It's fairly short. It's funny because there's weeks where Jerry's like, that's all that, that's there. And because then there'll be a week where there's like three or four slides and there's a lot there. But there's just six verses and it's actually like half of a, it's like five and a half verses. Um, so we're going to start in verse six. I'm going to read this uh, once time, one time through because then we're going to look at it from a different angle here in a second. So um, everybody got coffee? Everybody ready to go? We good? We good? Okay. Mark chapter six, starting in verse one. Jesus went away from there. Which, where was Jesus? He just healed the little girl, right? Um, that, that's what was happening at the end of chapter 5. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not... Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, here, here Jesus goes with Jesus' sayings, right? With what does Jesus actually say in the text? What does Jesus say in the Bible? Just like with the parables, he says some interesting things. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled. Jesus was amazed, right? He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Um, and whenever you see a Bible verse that has like the letter A or B after it, like if it says verse 6a or 6b it means that you cut that verse off like in the middle of it that's all that means and so um, a lot of times they'll cut this off and, and then we'd actually cut it off uh, right there at the very in, in verse 6 and he marveled because of their unbelief stop that's where you'd stop that um, and when I used to work at Starbucks um, I would wake up earlier in the morning and I'd go and, uh, you know, you have to be there at five and 
and I drive across Colorado Springs to get to the store, and it, I, I'm not a morning person at all. Um, I struggle to, to get functioning in the morning. And uh, one of the best parts of my job was to uh, calibrate the espresso machines, right? You get in there and you get everything all set up, and then you would, you'd have to get those because of the way that the, uh, you know, how an espresso machine works, it grinds the coffee really fine, it packs it, uh, automatic machine will pack it into a like a hockey puck and then it will shoot pressurized boiling water through that puck which causes you to extract through those finely ground powder like coffee grounds into those shot glasses and whenever you do that there's this whole science behind this and there's people that really nerd out with coffee uh, we've all seen this that this has been a whole generation of people that geek out with coffee and and, and uh, but when I would do that You'd have to calibrate because the, the timing, and there would always be uh, on those machines, you have to have the shots falling and filling up the glass between 18 and 23 seconds. It had to be somewhere in there, and that was the calibration of the machine. So every morning, uh, you'd, pull, you'd pull shots to make sure that this thing was giving you that quality of, uh, of espresso. But the best part of waking up was not folders in my cup, okay? It was, it was calibrating that machine and smelling that coffee, that espresso. It was just so fresh and it was so good. But there's a thing that happens when you've worked at a place long enough, and if any of you have ever worked at a fast food uh, place or a food, you mean, you become so familiar with the things that are free to you that you're like, this is, it's still good. It's just, it's not as great as when you don't have it. So now, and that's what Starbucks did. They hired a whole bunch of people over time and while they were working in college and then they left the Starbucks and now they have, they have clientele for life because we're all addicted uh, to uh, that season of our life where we just gave our souls to the coffee and we um, were wrapped up in that, that smell of the culture. And, but there's distance now, right? I can't just walk in there and pull some shots. I can't go behind the counter and make myself a drink, right? They're, they'd be like, you know, get out of here. Uh, and so there's distance there, so I have to pay for it. There's this barrier, there's this economic barrier between me and the thing that I used to get for free. And, and it's, it, there's now, now, it's, now it's like I want it way more than I ever when it was free. Um, there's a lot of things in our life that become like that when we become a, used to something. We, we get so used to it, we start, we, we think we've got it figured out. We, we have access to it and, and it becomes so familiar that uh, what's the, the old English proverb? Familiar, familiarity breeds contempt. We, we get almost dissatisfied. We get indifferent when we have something that's there. And just like the old 80s glam rock band Cinderella with her ballad said, you don't know what you got till it's gone, right? <laughs> and some of you are like, what is that? But we really don't know what we have until we don't have it anymore. And so I bring up that metaphor and that analogy to, to just tap into the human experience of being, having something that's accessible to us that we you take for granted. Uh, we all do this in different areas of our lives, whether it's with um, people, whether it's with a job, whether it's with uh, time in our lives. Um, and where that ties into Mark is so we've been going through the Gospel of Mark and we've made it all the way to chapter 6. 
And we've seen a couple of things repeat throughout the text. And, and the key thing that I want to highlight over and over as you study Mark, and if you go read this on your own, is that Mark is writing so that you see what Jesus does and what Jesus says, and that you will respond to the Jesus that Mark presents to you. That's the only purpose of this gospel is to tell you about Jesus so that you will, it's, it's not so you can have ammunition to go blast your your morally wrong friends with. It's not a text to go and grab your political agenda and just go ram that into, into people. This is a personal encounter with the God of the universe through the human author speaking to you to get you on a front row seat to see who Jesus was walking and living among people on planet earth in a time zone in the first century so that you will respond now, what Mark presents to you is he gives you two options. There's really three because there's an indifference. You can just be like, I don't really care. I'm not going to read the text. I don't really care about Jesus. I'm just going to like ignore it. But if you read the text, you have really two options. You are going to either reject the Jesus that Mark presents or you're going to rejoice with the Jesus that Mark presents. You're going to do one or the other. But what's fascinating in the way that Mark writes his, his gospel is that the disciples, you immediately think, good church people, that the disciples are on the inside, right? The disciples were called to follow Jesus. Jesus sees them fishing. He sees them at the tax collector. He says, come follow me. And so he invites them into this movement of Jesus. But the disciples throughout the story really don't know what's going on either. It's not till after the resurrection that they have this aha moment. I mean, even Thomas is like, I'm not in on this. I need to, I need a touch to, to validate. I need empirical proof that this is really Jesus and that this really happened, that he died and he rose again. So we come to the text a lot of times not prepared to deal with the disciples' ambiguity because we already assume, well, this is the disciples. It's Peter, of course he gets it. We haven't got to chapter 8, and that's where Jesus says he calls Peter Satan. He says, get behind me. Mark is presenting to you Jesus, and there's echoes in the text. There's things that overlap over and over, and that's why when you study the Gospel of Mark or when you're coming to hear sermons, you might miss pieces, not just because I talk really fast and I say things in digression and I just rabbit trail all the time. You might miss things because there's a lot to grasp here. There's a lot of things going on. And a lot of times our Twitter attention spans uh, can't handle the, uh, the, the volume of the text. Jesus announces his ministry, right? He, he steps into his ministry after being baptized by John. The sky rips open. The Spirit of, Jesus, uh, Spirit of God comes into Jesus. John is arrested right out of the gate in chapter 1. Jesus starts his ministry right after his encounter with the evil one, right? The, the Satan out in the desert. Mark doesn't give it a lot of attention to it. Mark moves very fast. He leaves out a lot of details. And as before we even get uh, very far, we find Jesus teaching. He's, he's announced his ministry that God's kingdom has come on earth. And Jesus is teaching in the local synagogue. Now, men could teach in the synagogue. Any, any male individual could get up and, and teach in the synagogue. And so we see Jesus there, but 
right out of the gate, we see that there was a man that had a demon, and Jesus tells the demon uh, to be muzzled or to shut up. He tells the demon to, sh to, to shut up. And we start to see this character as Marcus presenting Jesus, that Jesus has the authority over the spiritual realm. Jesus then has the authority over sickness, and Jesus has the authority and power over nature. We've watched these things develop through the text. But that rejoicing, rejecting theme is going to just continue to move like a rhythm throughout the gospel. We have all the different characters, right? We've got the crowds. We've got Jewish crowds and we've got Gentile crowds, people that were part of the Jewish tradition. We've got people that are the pagans. We've got all the different classes of religious people. We've got the Herodians who are part of the political system. We've got the Pharisees who were trying to spark a renewal movement for Judaism by bringing the things of the temple to the lay people so that they could live out their faith, live out their holiness in the culture. But they did it in a box type of way where they pretty much said that you were going to, you know, we're going to stone you if you get the box wrong. Jesus encounters all these different characters in these groups. And, of course, then we've got the disciples who are like teenagers following around Jesus. And they're kind of confused on what this whole thing is about. But they've been called to this revolution. And what is happening is people are watching Jesus do all these miracles. And there comes a point where the Pharisees actually tell Jesus that, well, you're, the reason you can deliver demons is because you're, you're like the prince of demons. You're basically Satan. And in that same story, we saw Jesus' family come to try to take him away to pull him into the loony bin, right? Do you remember that story? And Jesus redefines the family by saying those who do the will of the Father, those that have faith, are actually part of Jesus' family. Those are his brothers and mothers and sisters. That is a redefinition of the family. We've got the family come to take Jesus away because Jesus has gone loony. We've got the Pharisees saying, ah, he's, he's lost it. And we entered, we entered a whole new section in Mark when the Pharisees went to team up with the Herodians to kill Jesus. That was a, a turning point. And then we entered into the section where Jesus, he calms the storm. He's on, he's, he's on the boat with the disciples. The disciples are freaking out and Jesus is asleep. He wakes up. He speaks to the, to the storm. It stops. And then they have this question of who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey this guy. So they're having this like wrestling with Mark is presenting us with Jesus. We're wrestling with who Jesus is. The characters in the text are wrestling with who Jesus is by what Jesus says and by what Jesus does. They get out of the boat. Well, Jesus gets out of the boat after the storm and he goes into the graveyard of the, gen the Gentile graveyard where the pigs are. He casts the demons out of that guy and the city freaks out because their economic value of the pigs is went down into the lake and drowned. They tell Jesus to leave. The, the Gentile guy that got delivered from the demons is like, hey, let me come with you. Let me follow you. And Jesus is like, no, you need to stay here and go back. But throughout the whole story, we've been seeing Jesus tell all of the people, don't tell people that I healed you. Don't tell them that I did this. Because he's telling the people of Israel because God was keeping his covenant promises all the way from the Old Testament. What God was doing through the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, everything down to the present, God was still carrying on that story. Israel was supposed to be a megaphone to the world, not to be a hoarder of God's love and truth. They were supposed to share that and be the example to change the world. The Hebrew word is tesadaki. They were supposed to be righteous judges. 
There's that Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 14.10 or 10.14. It says, the city rejoices when the righteous prosper. You know why the city rejoices when the righteous prosper? Because you can sleep good at night with your doors unlocked because the righteous are running the show. And nobody's going to come and steal your family. Nobody's going to come in there and steal your stuff. Hey, you're going to be able to eat. Everybody gets a seat at the table. The city gets excited when there's righteousness. And we see that this was the, the, the context in which Israel was supposed to be that. So Jesus is first going to the, children, to the house of Israel to call those people. But just like all religious people throughout time, just like the Jewish people, just like Christians today, we think that it, we are privileged because we are saved. We think we're privileged because we're part of the family of God. And those things are privileges, but they're not privileges to hoard. They're gifts for us to be megaphones of God's love, good justice, and mercy to the rest of the world. If you think getting into heaven is the goal of the scriptures, it's not. It's not the goal to die and get into heaven. Now, that's a byproduct of having a real relationship with the creator of the universe who died and rose again. And you put your faith in it and you live that out. It's a byproduct. We don't go after God to get God's stuff. We go after God to get God. We go after Jesus to get Jesus because Jesus is that good. This is the heart representation of God shown up in human form. And this is good news for everybody. But we all don't have that background usually when we think about why is Jesus only going to the Jewish people? Well, he's keeping the covenant that God had done, which, again, is going to spread out and have lasting implications, as we see through the rest of the New Testament, when Paul is the missionary to the Gentiles, those that were outside the promises of God. Now, I give you all that background because every time we get to the text, I know that this is probably not what you've been thinking about all week, right? But you, you're start, I can see some of you nodding your heads, and you've been paying attention to this, these themes, and they're, they're kind of on repeat. This text that we just read in Mark chapter 6, Jesus leaves the graveyard, and he encounters the lady that's been bleeding for 12 years. But before he does that, the guy that's a leader in the synagogue, Jairus, shows up, and his daughter's 12 years old as well, and she's dying. And he says, Jesus, come, and if you just touch her, she will be made well. Jesus is interrupted by the lady that makes her way through the crowd, touches Jesus' hem of his garment, and Jesus raises her back to life, and this is where we end up here. What's weird is when you read the Gospels, they all do different things. If you go to Luke chapter 4, Listen to the way that Luke records this scene. This is actually right after the temptation by the devil out in uh, the wilderness. And of course, Luke has a lot more uh, content with that scene. But, Jesus, but Luke puts this scene right after, right after that, whereas Mark, that was in chapter 1, and we're already at chapter 6. Are you guys still with me? You guys trucking along? <laughs> Luke says in chapter 4, starting in verse 14... And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues. Remember, all males can get up and teach. Being glorified by all, or being amazing everyone. Verse 16, this is the story in Luke that we just read in Mark. 
And Jesus came to Nazareth. Mark didn't tell us it was Nazareth. We, we learned that in Mark that his hometown that he was from Nazareth. Luke is giving us that insight that it was Nazareth. Which is, by the way, a no-name place. He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. You with me? Because in John chapter 7, John chapter 8, when the Pharisees are telling Nicodemus, hey, go check your history, go check your Bible, Nicodemus. No, no prophet comes from there. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So this was just the place in the text that, that Jesus was to read. It, was, it wasn't like he went and found it. It's like he just, it, it, this, is the, this is the place uh, of Isaiah. Unscrolled the, he, he unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So here's Isaiah. Now, this is not good preaching, by the way. I, I'm just going to let you in on this. This is not good preaching because I don't have like five things that you need to take away from this. I'm trying to give you the meat. Hit pause on, he's reading Isaiah. Go back to when Jesus is talking about the parables back in Mark chapter 4. I know this is a lot to, to try to grab. That was a weird two Sundays where we were looking at the parables. Remember, we were all kind of confused. Jesus talks in riddles and he says all these things. He talks about the farmer that's just really graciously throwing out seed, truth that's going to hit the soil. There's all these uh, barriers to the seed germinating in the soil to bear fruit. Jesus talks about uh, the, the seed works in the ground even though nobody sees it working. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6 back in the parables and he says, you know what? Everybody that's on the outside, they're not going to understand any of this stuff anyway. He quotes Isaiah because God was telling Isaiah, hey, you're going to go preach to a whole bunch of people that don't want to hear what you got to say. And in fact, the more truth you give them, the more they're going to reject what, the truth that you're trying to give them. You ever been around people like that? You know that you're in the right, you know that you got the fact, you know you got the truth, but there's some barrier. And the more truth you give them is the more reason for them to just fire stuff back at you. That's what God's saying to Isaiah. Jesus quotes that. And then in the parable section, Jesus further says that it's about revealing. It's not about concealing. God really does want people to understand salvation. But a lot of times it's the person's willful volition. It's not about information. It's not about truth. Usually that people reject God or Jesus. It's because it's a personal volition against that. So that was Isaiah and that whole context of the parables. Listen to this. Jesus is reading again from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus taught in the synagogue, right? He just got up and he talked. Now, watch this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus gets up in the middle of the synagogue in his hometown that he grew up, right? Everybody knows Jesus. And he finds in the place Isaiah that he opened, the, the, the Isaiah scroll, and he starts to read this text. The Jewish people are hearing this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is the Messiah, the one that was promised that was going to come to liberate Israel. Jesus is saying this as he's reading the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. This is the anointed one of God. To proclaim good news to the poor. Remember how Mark started? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the announcement that a king comes back for war to tell everybody, guess what? We won. Good news. That's what that secular term, that political term means, gospel, good news. It means that the tyranny of the king is going to continue and all the upper class is still going to achieve their goals. Good news, everybody. But God shows up and the good news is flipped on its head. It's good news to the poor. It's to those that shouldn't get at the, a seat at the table. To proclaim good news to the poor. By the way, good news usually reaches the poor last. Even in an information age, the, the poor usually don't know how to file their taxes. The poor usually don't know how to set up a financial plan. The poor usually don't have a, a, a system so you know what they do? A lot of times they have to come together and they have to steal. They have to figure out, they, they come up with ways the best way they know how, just like you would do and I would do. And so this is a flip of the heart of God showing through the Old Testament and through Jesus reading this, saying that the proclaim the good news to the poor, Messiah God showed up to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, both spiritually and physically, right? Jesus' ministry has been healing people, and we're going to see through Mark that he's going to heal other people that are blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. We saw that with the, the guy that was in the graveyard, right? He was bound by demons and now he's been set free. And to proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor. Remember the year of Jubilee? The Jewish people every 50 years. Hey, you owe that money on your mortgage? It's paid for. Hey, you've been a prisoner? You're free. This is just this explosive generosity of God. And Jesus is reading this in the synagogue. This is still the scene, Mark chapter 6. Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Jesus is affirming that he is the fulfillment of what he just read. And the eyes of everybody in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words and were coming, that were coming from his mouth. People are getting excited in the Jewish church, right? They're all getting excited about synagogue. Ah, he is the anointed one. This is good news. Because, you know, in their mind, they were hearing uh, freedom from the oppressors, which in their mind is Rome. <laughs> and then Jesus says this. Remember in Mark, he doesn't tell you what he said. He doesn't say that he said, just says that they reject him. Because he's Jesus. We, he's, he's, he's the guy that grew up around the street with Carl. Right? Just that guy that just, we already know is Jesus, son of Mary, son of Joseph. Where do you get this wisdom? But then Jesus does this, and this is why I love Jesus, because Jesus just, he always, he always makes it a party. He says, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you this, pay attention here, guys. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And you guys are all like, amen. Yes, yes, right? No, because... You read that and go, Jesus, what are you, why are you talking about Elijah? What are you talking about this stuff for? Jesus continues. He says, and there were many lepers in Israel in that time. A lot of people of Israelites that were leprous. 
the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. People, look how, they re- look how they react. When they heard these things, the synagogue people, remember they were just all amazed? Now they're ticked. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill in which, a brow of a hill in which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went away. Jesus brings up this story. Israel has always thought of themselves privileged that they were on the inside with God. They were the chosen people of God. That they were right. They were, they were going to get all the gifts of God's goodness in the world. But it wasn't about hoarding. It was about being that to represent to the world who God is. And, he, and Jesus brings up this deal like, oh, you think Messiah is about just delivering you from Rome. Messiah is about the same thing that God's always been about. Hey, remember that time when that bunch of Israelites, they were all covered in leprosy. And then these other people on the outside. The widow and Naaman, the Syrian. These are people on the outside that Jesus is saying that if you don't embrace what God is doing, Israel, I'm going to move to the next group. Because God is about the reconciliation process of all humanity, not a select group of people by race or by class or by anything like that. This is a God who wants all of humanity to be redeemed. And he wants all of the family of God. If you want to represent God in the world, you need to be a part about that reconciliation process. Now let's go back to the text. Mark is really concise on this, and he just, we saw all of those miracles leading up, the calling of the disciples in the first section of Mark, the the deal about the parables. In the parables, Jesus said to those on the outside, those that really don't get the kingdom of God, that everything's going to be told in in parables. But Jesus is going to try to enlighten everybody. He's going to try to spread the message of the kingdom as much as they can hear And then that section ends with the Pharisees plotting with the Herodians to kill Jesus. So we saw these characters and what their response was, rejection. The disciples are still in the game. They're still on on the storyline. And the the disciples are still trying to figure out who Jesus is as well. We make it through all of these healings. We make it through the calming of the storm. We make it through the demoniac getting healed. We make it through Jairus' daughter. We make it through the lady that's had the bleeding for 12 years. And we think we end at chapter 5 on this high note where God is just, yeah, woo, everybody should be running after Jesus. Jesus goes to his hometown and he gets rejected. Now, a couple of highlight things that I don't really want to digress into, but it, it might be helpful as we go through the study of Mark is... The disciples are with him in his hometown. The people are asking, where did he get these things? The reason they're asking this is the Greek word is tecton. Jesus is a tecton. He's a construction worker. He's a carpenter. We like the image of carpenter, but the person would have worked with stone or with wood. He would have worked. He was an artisan. People in that time period that were artisans were looked down upon. 200 years later, you can find writings still of people making fun of the Christians that they worshipped a laborer. Jesus is a tecton. He's a carpenter. He's a construction builder. Um, 
And so was Joseph, his, his dad, right? They're asking, where did he get these things? That's why they're asking that, because there was people that were artisans did not have this perception that they were wisdom. We still do this, right? We still ask people what they do. Now, in our culture, a person that comes from low means and works their way up by their own bootstraps, we think that that is admirable. In the ancient world, it was all about what you were born from. It was the nobility. So it's an honor-shame society where we're more of a guilt society. Oh, you didn't do the job well? Well, then you're not going to get any pie, right? We're, we are a guilt society as opposed to the ancient world is an honor-shame society. And the first thing usually out of people's mouths in the ancient world is a... Uh, a slam of some type or to ask what, what, what do you think we do when you meet somebody? You go, what do you do for a living? We base it off of uh, their, their occupation as in the ancient world they go, who are you? And so Nazareth, they're like, oh, it's Mary's son. Now, you can get into the weeds really far with this. Mark says Mary's son. Luke's people say this is Joseph's son. At this point, there's people that think that Joseph is, has died. That Jesus grew up kind of without a, a father. There's people that say that the reason that they're saying Mary is because they're, they're actually slamming Jesus because they know that Jesus was born out of wedlock, right? Because of the virgin birth. They also say because we have Mary, it's, this is the son of Mary and the, here's the other family members, brother of James, Joseph and Judas and Simon. Well, who are they? Well, the Roman Catholic Church, because of Jerome, has this Doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. I know that you guys would just get in the weeds here, but I'm just giving you some trivia so that you understand why these things are important, why they're in the text. Um, and there's Catholic theologians that uh, defend that, and there's people that disagree with that. And of course, because they believe that Jesus or that Mary was basically a virgin the entire time, and so that these are cousins of Jesus or that these are um, half brothers uh, of Jesus because Joseph and Mary had other kids. Uh, there's all sorts of different things that can be defended there, which I don't really care about any of that. Um, but there you go. Trivia. But this is the dialogue that they're having with Jesus. And they took offense at him. So they're amazed that Jesus uh, did all this stuff. He, he basically called them out and said, uh, well, you're privileged, but really it should be about the rest of the world. This is what Jesus' ministry is about. Jesus says that he's a prophet without honor. Um, this is interesting, the very ending part, and this is what we're going to end on. They're, they think they're familiar with Jesus, right? They've been smelling espresso a whole bunch of times. They understand that this is, this is just normal. They've become so familiar that they've got, they're, they're mad they think they know God. They think they're familiar with God and they're mad. And Jesus quotes the Old Testament, tells them really how God acts through the prophets. And they get mad about that. And they're actually, the irony with being so familiar that you lose, that you lose interest is that you're not familiar at all. That's the irony of it. Jesus has been doing all these healings and we come right here to the very end of these verses. And this is kind of fascinating to me. He could do no miracles there. Except... Ah, he laid some hand on hands. He laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. What? Okay, Jesus is God in the flesh, but he couldn't do any mighty works there. We just got done with a couple of stories about faith. Remember the lady that breaks through the crowd? She's got faith. The people back in chapter two that lower their friends through the roof—it was their faith. Faith plays a part in this. 
So you're not off the hook. God working in reality requires you to participate in reality with a relationship with him. And it's called faith. So faith is an important theme of this. Jesus could not do any works there. But, you know, there's another angle that you could look at this and say, the reason he couldn't do any miracles was because people didn't even bother. It's just Jesus. I know we heard he healed a whole bunch of people. We know he did. He delivered people from demons. But, hey, Carl, I know you're sick today, but just stay home. I'll go check it out for you since you can't make it over there. Why couldn't Jesus heal them? Maybe because it was their cynicism and they didn't just left all the sick people at home. Maybe that's what's happened here. Or maybe Mark's trying to tell you about a different sickness. He did heal people that showed up, but he couldn't heal the anti-God volition in their heart. He couldn't open their eyes spiritually. He couldn't open their ears to hear. They couldn't get the people the true miracle, which is to move them from non-belief to belief, from non-relationship with God to relationship with God. And I think that might be actually where I land in my interpretation with this text, is that Mark is trying to show you, yeah, who cares if you can heal sick people and you can raise the dead, but you don't know the one who does it? That's what I think Mark's doing here. And verse 6, and we'll leave it on this. Jesus, remember they, they were amazed at Jesus' teaching, and Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. And that's where we leave Mark. So you're like, Josh, well, what am I supposed to take away from all that? The big old noise that you just, just that digression. Make much of Jesus. Make much of the God who has shown up. Make much of the way that the scriptures do reveal Jesus and call you to have faith to step into that power in your culture and to realize that you are an evangelist for Jesus if you're part of the family of God. You have been called to have faith and to bring people from unbelief to belief, but through non-coercive ways. We'll do it through our love and for our uh, love for the outsider. That's what we see in the text with Jesus.